the book of Revelation, chapter 17. I'll begin reading in verse 1. I'll read to verse 11. Revelation, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit And go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Whose names are not written in the book of life. From the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was. And is not. And yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains. On which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. And the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself, also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we do ask that there is mystery here. But you have for us by your Spirit... Wisdom and insight and understanding prepared. And so, Lord, we would ask this morning that we might hear and know and live in light of the truth of your word. That we might be your most profitable servants, prepared for love and good deeds, for the building of your kingdom, that it might cover over all the earth. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we move to the book of Revelation, it is right for us to continue to review that which we have already seen. As I will say in a moment, the characters often shed light on the occasions. To know the characters is to understand what is happening. And we find again in Revelation 17 characters that we have seen before. The woman, the beast... And that hell that is to come, the seven heads, the seven kings, all of these things give us understanding and wisdom as to first how we are to understand the Bible, but that is the first step, isn't it? What in the world is going on here? Perhaps 
That is the question you ask. It is a good question. But we don't want to be left with that question because even here in Revelation chapter 17, the angel says to John, I'm telling you how to understand it. And if you're anything like me, you still go, I'm sorry, what? What? (laughs) But let us remember this first, that John is writing to a people who I would argue readily understood the interpretation that begins in verse 9. The here is the mind which has wisdom. Our longing ought to be, as we open the word of God, is not scripture that is easily or quickly understood, but is substantial that requires wisdom and so careful searching. We want to be lifelong students of the word, and Revelation is one of those books that can be for us always something that we can go back to To be encouraged. Now you may say, encouraged? The title of your sermon is a bit saucy. There's a lot of that here in the book of Revelation. God has much to say of the sins of Jerusalem, which means he has much to say of the sins of today. For to reject the Messiah is to become like Babylon itself. And so this morning... John's vision turns to an even more poignant, simple revelation of the true offense of the sin of Jerusalem in her unholy covenant that she made with the beast that is Rome. Two points then that I want to make this morning. The first, the woman and the beast. The woman and the beast. And then the second... The old and new Jerusalem. The woman and the beast, and then the old and new Jerusalem. Let's look at this first point. The woman and the beast. These are the characters, and as I said already, knowing the characters helps reveal the plot. Now a bit of review may help provide clarity. The woman here, called the harlot, which is an even more delicate way than some commentaries and translations put it, is none other than the city of Jerusalem. Now, I say all this understanding that this is a sermon and not a Sunday school class, and so I do not present to you all of the options for how the book of Revelation is to be interpreted, or not is to be, might be interpreted. I am giving you what I think is the correct interpretation, that the harlot is none other than the city of Jerusalem. This is in contrast, of course, to the new bride, the new Jerusalem, the one who comes down from heaven. The city of Jerusalem was those people who denied Christ and put him to death. Those who rejected the only redeemer of sinners, who said to the nation of Rome, we wish for your rule and not the rule of this king. And they got exactly what they asked for. She was a harlot because she was unfaithful to her husband. She was faithless to her maker and covenant redeemer. She had abandoned the one who had freed her from sin and death, who gave her the promises, who entered into covenant with her many millennia ago. She had the law, the prophets. She had the kings, the judges, 
So many constant declarations of covenant faithfulness. And yet, even in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a chapter that consists of 68 verses, in that chapter the Lord outlines in the first 15 verses blessings if they keep the covenant. And then the last three quarters of that chapter, what happens if you do not? And at the end of chapter 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 68, this is what the Lord says to Israel, if they break covenant and the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Israel still lives under this condemnation. We ought to take the covenants of God seriously. We think too rationalistically. We have been so heavily influenced by European enlightenment that we no longer think in terms of God's eternal, everlasting covenant blessings and cursings. We ought to reorient the way we think. Now, there will come a time, as Paul says in the book of Romans, that God will restore to his old covenant people a time of renewal and repentance. And I would argue that that happens when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ experiences such glorious blessing and success in building of the work of the church that they go, that was the Messiah. In fact, if I can give you a little bit of inside baseball, this is the primary reason for why I'm post-mill. Because there's a lot of work not only left to be done on the earth, but for the people of the Jews, the Jewish nation. God will restore them, but they are still living under a curse. Now, who is the beast? The beast is described as having come from the sea. We see that in chapter 17. And in Revelation 13, if you remember from several weeks prior... In uh, Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, this is John, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Remember that name? 666. Nero. It was the Roman Empire, the sea beast, the land beast was Israel that blasphemous apostate people, the sea beast was Rome. Here there is a different vision explaining something unique about the relationship of the Jewish leaders of the day, the Pharisees in particular, because they're described in Revelation 17 in a way that is similar to the way Jesus describes them in the Gospels. But the woman here is riding the beast. There is an intimate connection and she is deriving power and strength and violence from that beast. It is this unholy, ungodly, pagan connection between the people whom God chose as his special possession out of all the nations of earth and Rome. And Rome... What is interesting is this, despite the corruptions of Rome, it was Jerusalem first that persecuted the prophets. Rome would follow suit, but the Jews beat them to the punch. 
And so Christ, in the revelation of his word here through this angel, speaks of this woman as the great harlot who has aligned herself in an unholy, covenantal, adulterous way. They are both allied against the Lord's anointed. Not only Christ, but the church. Not only is she writing, connected to, deriving strength and directing this beast, but look at how she is dressed. Verse 3, so he, the angel, carried me, John, away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads, ten horns. There's the description of the beast and its pagan, pantheistic expression of religion. And then verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. Now, we'll get to what's in the cup in a moment, but look at how she's dressed. She's beautiful. She is arrayed in finery. But from whom does this finery come? Now, when Christ speaks of the Pharisees, he labels them. He has this accusation against them. You are but whitewashed sepulchers or tombs. What is whitewashing? Whitewashing is the process of painting. They're painted, they have a nice veneer of righteousness because they say they keep the law, but the heart of the Pharisee was not a heart of grace. It was a corrupt heart, pretty on the outside, putrid and rotting on the inside, like a coffin. Such is Israel. Israel was like the Pharisee. That is what they were like. They were beautiful, but they were ugly. They were dressed well, but within, spiritually speaking, covenantally, their cup was full of what? Filthiness of fornication and pagan abomination. It's very possible to look very, very righteous and be very, very wicked. Which is why membership in the covenant people of God, visibly speaking, is not and never enough. You can't get by fooling God in your fineries. Because someone who is fine on the outside, but wretched on the inside, has not been dressed by God, has he? He or she has been dressed by whom? The father of lies. The one who likes to dress up the outside, but leaves the inside completely unchanged and corrupted. Satan himself. Jerusalem, Israel, the Jewish people as a whole, aside from a few of the remnant who belong to God, were as a nation in the process of forsaking their Redeemer and embracing the pagan gods of the world. She had forsaken that one covenant and entered into another covenant with a most hideous master. In fact, Solomon in the Proverbs uses this same imagery of the woman of wisdom who stands on one 
into the street and she is beautiful. And then there is another woman at the end of the street and she is beautiful. But inside the house of wisdom, there are the pillars that she has erected, pillars upon which you can build your life, and she will feed you nourishing food. But if you go into Lady Folly's house, what is it? It is an open grave. In my mind, I always think of Wiley Coyote, you know, stepping off the ledge into the pit, (laughs) and he doesn't realize that gravity has no effect until he looks at the camera and breaks the fourth wall or third wall or whatever that wall is called. Whoops. You open the door and there is the pit. But everything up until the entryway looks beautiful. And so to those who embrace covenant rebellion. And not only is she riding this beast, dressed beautifully but dirty and filthy on the inside, but she bears a name. See, we all bear a name. We either bear the name of Christ or we bear the name of the beast. But if you double-click on that 666 and you expand that name or you look a little closer and you zoom in a little tighter, this is what it reads. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, there are some who say that this is Rome. Yet the whole theme of the book of Revelation is the rejection of old Jerusalem for the embracing and the establishing of new Jerusalem. This is a condemnation against that nation who was once taken into captivity by Babylon because she was no better than Babylon. For many churches in this world today, that transfer of citizenship from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness is actually a pretty smooth transition. They have abandoned the gospel. They have nothing to offer that any other social club or institution has to offer the world, right? The feel-goods, an emotional stroking, a rejection of the doctrine of sin and the call to salvation, an opening up of the Lord's Supper to everybody because God loves everybody the same. And what ends up happening for so many covenant communities that once bore the name of Christ, that may still bear the name of Christ or church on their marquee, is they have not only become like the world, but they have actually become far worse than the world. Because not only do they believe the doctrines of the world, but they leave others or lead others astray while bearing the name of Christ in his church. Like when pastors fall or fathers reject their families. Great sins that bring great damage. She was guilty of spiritual or covenantal adultery. And she was guilty of persecuting the saints. And that is what we read. She is the one who brings suffering and persecution to the church. Why? Why do the ungodly persecute the godly? When you are in sin, why do you reject and avoid those who will call you on it? Because you love your sin. You seek not conviction. You wish to be left alone in your pursuit of perdition. This is the woman and the beast. 
And if it can happen to Jerusalem, is the warning then not to all those who call upon the name of Christ to be careful and take watch over your souls? Lest we too be like Babylon? Lest we too be harlotrous in our covenantal union with Christ? And of course, Jerusalem, more than any other nation, because Jerusalem was the city, it was the nation, it was the people. Particular, consecrated, baptized, circumcised. But she had become an abomination. For if the salt loses its saltiness, what is to happen? It must be trampled underfoot. And so we ought to look at her, and rightly so, in horror and disgust. Now that horror and disgust, as we understand it oftentimes, is, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And we turn our nose up and we go the other way in some sort of spiritual self-righteousness. But who were the Gentiles? Were they any less of an abomination? Is not every man, woman, and child that has ever lived called to do the same thing, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? And anyone that rejects that chief end is, by definition, ungodly. Yet Israel was particularly so because God had named her. She was married to him. They were in covenant. And for thousands of years, God displayed his covenant affection. And time and time and time again, he wooed her and won her back. And then he sent the son into the world. And they put him to death. And so now time for a new Jerusalem. Another bride, the Gentiles. And yes, even some Jews as well. And that leads me to my second point, the old and new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem, as I've said, is the harlot. She had been led astray and she led others astray. Have you seen this Enneagram garbage? It's witchcraft. Go get on social media and find how many Christian influencers have their Enneagram numbers on their profile page. They are leading people into what is just pure witchcraft. And you know why? Because it's sold as a personality test. It's like the horoscope. Here's the problem. The devil doesn't come to us with long crooked fingers and the warty nose dressed in black. You look at that and go, it's not tempting at all. But under the guise of this will help sort your life out a little bit better. Aren't you stressed? Don't you want some relief? Eve, listen, don't you feel like God is holding back, withholding from you? I remember when my dad was but a boy, and they, he and his brothers were all home from church one morning, and uh, my grandfather and grandmother were away, and when they came home, there they were, my dad and his three brothers, in front of the television, watching the televangelist with their hands on the screen because they had been in t- instructed, as I pray for you, put your hand on the screen and touch the place that is afflicted. Well, they had colds, and so they were all covering their noses because they wanted the runniness to end. <coughs> Thank you. 
that solve your problems. Or the special prayer handkerchief, you've seen this. Small donation, and if you bring it into your home, it will bless you as some sort of talisman. It's witchcraft. Because it isn't built upon God's covenant promises. It's built upon what? Let me dress you, and you will be better for it. If you but lay hold of that thing which God is withholding from you, you will be better for it. And what Jerusalem had done, what the Israelites had done, is they had betrayed God's covenant promises for, here it is, safety. We, Rome, will not persecute you. We will not close your churches. We will not take your lives. But here... Here's a Washington-approved sermon. We want you to preach this next week, Mr. Fowler. Right? We want you to do this. Because if you do, we'll give you a tax break. We'll do all of these things for you. And it is tempting. It is tempting to give way to the threats of the beast and make covenant with that beast in order to do what? To experience some relief which is why when peter writes to the church the early church and he says it is because you're suffering for righteousness sake that people will look at you and they will see that you have not compromised and they will look at you and go how is it that you can do this and smile and be joyful and no persecution because they've given it up We are living in an age where the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this country will experience revival because so many have fallen away. And God will, by his spirit, reveal to the true saints and even to those who do not know Christ, but will be converted in days like today. Hold fast to the true confession. Israel had compromised... And then they called others to enter into that compromise and promoted it. Which is why in John chapter 2 we see Christ at his most aggressive in confronting the unbelief and the wretched practice of Israel when he cleared the court of the Gentiles. What did he say? You have made my house a house of what? Commerce. You are selling this special prayer handkerchief. What the Jews were saying to the Gentile world is, in order to come near God, you must become like us. The problem with the Jewish religion of the day was they had forgotten the husband. And what the gospel was coming to do was to proclaim to the Gentile world, you come through Christ, the eternal sacrifice, not through these things that you can barter and trade and sell. Because this is what Christ had come to do in Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even them, that is the Gentiles, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the church, the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. There's the transition. Christ is coming 
And what he will do is he'll take that single door that sits at the back and he will expand it so that it is an open floor plan. I will bring the nations into my house. Don't stand in my way. But for a people who had forgotten their God and forgotten his purposes, all they could do is stand in the way. And so what is happening here is that the new bride, the new Jerusalem that is prepared by God, that is coming from heaven to earth, will supplant the old Jerusalem that has been brought to ruin. God is clearing away the chaff. He is clearing away the field so that the new church might be established. Not born of earth, not protected by Rome, not in league with the nations of this earth, but Christ and Christ alone. And so John marvels at these things. What's going on? And that is when he is given the interpretation. This has to do with Rome and Jerusalem. Now there is a lot that can be said about that. But we're progressing quickly in this time of worship. So let me just say this. In summation, because Israel allied themselves with a nation and kings and emperors that could not save them, they would become like them. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, both verse 18. Those who were, or verse 8, those who worship false gods become like them. They turn to dust or they are burned in the fire. And in fact, twice we see this word perdition. The beast is Rome, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. What is perdition? Hell. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Rome fell. How did she fall? Under the own, her own weight of ungodliness. So to every nation. All those who worship gods, false gods, will become like them. Those whose names are not written in the book of life. When they see this beast that was, here John is speaking of the emperors that came before, five of them, is not the ones that would come later and is, which is Nero at the time of John's writing. Galba is the emperor that would come and his reign would be very short, just seven months, which is why later, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. This is the geographical indication that John is speaking of Rome. Everyone knew of the seven hills of Rome at that time. The woman sits on them like she sits upon the beast. There are also seven kings. As I said earlier, five have fallen. One is, that's Nero, and the other has not yet come. That's Galba. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. He was emperor for seven months, a very short time. And then after Galba... During the Vespas or the uh, Flavian dynasty, we see this in verse eleven. It consider uh, it consisted of Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Now, Vespasian was the emperor that invaded Jerusalem. He had to give up the sacking of Jerusalem. He gave it to Titus, 
And then after Titus, Domitian took over quickly. All of these kings became opposed to the work of the church. And here is why. Both kingdoms are after power. Both kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, are after the same end. And what is that end? World conquest. Now, guys, we're worshiping in a small room, as a small body, in a small county, in contrast to the big wide world. But what has happened since the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago? Gaston County has been evangelized. In fact, the hard thing about doing evangelism in Gaston County and baptizing adults is finding adults that haven't been baptized. Now, they may not have received true baptism. They may not still be worshiping God. They may be apostate. But my point is this. The gospel of Christ has gone forth to the nations. Our responsibility as those who have the keys of the kingdom of evangelism and discipleship is not only to baptize, but to make sure those who are baptized, what? Remain true to their Lord and Savior. But Jerusalem, what will happen to her? Where is the beast headed? And all of those who ride her, as it were, to hell. Where's Rome? People go see it now, right? It's a tourist trap. If you want to go, get your wallet stolen, go to Rome. They're beautiful places, but it's kitsch. It's a kingdom that was. Today, we celebrate the fellowship of the Holy Spirit because we are part of a kingdom that is and will be forever. And so what John is saying, he's writing to the early church, and they look at Rome and go, how can we stand against Rome? What do we do about these Jews that keep putting us to death? And John says, their time is coming. And it was as true for the church then as it is now. What do we do about X? Political party, ex-person in power, ex-governmental institution. Will we have victory? And God, through his servant John, by the Holy Spirit, is pulling our aperture. He's opening our eyes and he says, yes, you will have victory. Because this is where all those who have allied themselves to false powers and not Christ are headed. They're riding the beast all the way to hell. But by God's grace, you and I, we who are connected to Christ who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth, we will live forever. We will stand forever. We will know the success that comes in Christ's resurrection. And we will drink of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord.